Well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas to you. Can I say that now? Beginning of December. Who knew it could happen here so fast? Hey, if you have your Bible, please take it to Jonah. Chapter 4 in particular, we're going to wrap up our series called Unexpected out of the book of Jonah. So excited about what God's going to share with us today, I believe. Hey, um, so suppose I have a friend coming from Australia. He's coming out here to the West Coast, British Columbia, and uh, I'm really excited that he's coming, and I'm excited for you to meet him. And you can sense my excitement, so you're a little curious. What is this guy like? I'm not very good at describing physical characteristics, and that's really what you... You don't really care about that anyways. You want to know more about, like, what, what is his personality like? What is his character like? And I could give it to you in bullet point form. Like, he is kind. He is generous. He's really caring. But I decide to do something different. I'm going to tell you what he is like. And so I begin to share with you the story of our interaction with him and his family and how we began to get to know them, how my young daughter was in her teens, went to Australia on her own and, and uh, was given their name. And uh, they, the, I, the plan was they would put her up for a night or two and then she would find, get her bearings and find her way in Australia. That two or three days turned into weeks, turned into months, turned into really the family adopting her. Um, they took care of her. They watched over her. He provided a job for her. Um, he protected her as a father would. I was so happy about that. I didn't know the stories that were going on at the time. Found out about them later, but he watched over her, protected her later when she came back home. They flew her out another time to babysit their young sons because she was now the older sister in the family. And when our family went through a hard time out here in British Columbia, they got on a plane and came out here just to be with us. That's the kind of person, that's my friend that's coming. And now you can't wait to meet him and his family too. We learn a lot about a person by their story. We learn a lot about God by his story. And we're looking now at Jonah and we're finishing it up. And it's, it's, uh, Jonah is one of the books of the prophets, but it's very unique in that Jonah is not so much about the words of the prophet, it's about the story of the prophet. And it's named after the prophet Jonah. But it's really, in a sense, not even Jonah's story. It's more so about the story of God as he relates to Jonah. And it comes in a, a very symmetrical form to us. Um, first two chapters of the book are Jonah's first call. Last two chapters of the book are Jonah's second call. And so if you haven't been journeying with us, let me just get you up to speed. In the first chapter, uh, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. He's called to go to Nineveh. It's only about a thousand kilometer walk. No big deal. In the heat, through the desert. But Jonah says, mm, I'm not going east. I'm going west. And so he gets down to the coast of Israel, gets on a ship, and it doesn't go so well for him. There's a storm. He's tossed overboard and so that everybody else can live. Swallowed by a fish. Sunk to the bottom of the sea. Uh, it's pretty dark in a fish's belly and, you know, soaked in acidic juices. Probably didn't smell that good. Seaweed around your head. You get the picture, right? But the end of chapter two, whoop, he's vomited onto the shore. We get to chapter three, new story. It's the second call of Jonah. So God's call comes to Jonah again 
God wants Jonah to go to Nineveh. And so what happens? And Jonah, in his obedience, goes there. And he says to Nineveh in verse 5 of chapter 3, or in verse, um, blah, blah, blah. let me find it here. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his word to them. He's been obedient. And it's amazing. Because the people hear Jonah's words and they aren't extrapolated for us here in the story. He probably said a little bit more, but we're given the Reader's Digest of it. In 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overturned. No? But the people respond. And they respond in repentance. That means to turn back to God. They're sorry for the evil ways that they have been living. And, and it's not just the rank and file. It's not just the peasants. It reaches right to the upper levels of their society, right to the king who decrees that everyone, even man and beast, should, should clothe themselves in sackcloth and go without food and drink. And let's just humble ourselves before God and turn from your wicked ways. Like This is repentance of a whole city. The king says in verse 9, Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Chapter 3, verse 10, it says, And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So I've prayed for the city of Abbotsford a lot. And I've prayed that in our city, God's spirit would move in such a way that it would bring, you know, en masse, the people of our city to a place of turning away from all the things that distract us and, and our wicked ways, if you will, and turn to God. Can you imagine if our 140,000 plus or how many, how many ever there are in, in Abbotsford, if 140,000 people turned to God in this city, like, don't you think that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you would just be ecstatic that that had happened? But Jonah is angry. Jonah is exceedingly displeased. And I think for us to get, understand the backstory to this, we need to consider maybe something that's happening in our day. So this last summer, I went to Iraq, and we flew into Orbil. I was uh, joining an organization that's promoting peace around the world, and we fly into Orbil, Iraq. We get in our vehicles, and it's uh, quite a drive to where we were headed to, a city of called Dehuk in northern Iraq, which is referred to as Kurdistan. So we, we get in our vehicles, and we're driving, and I'm watching the, the terrain around us, and uh, at some point on this several hours of, of driving, there's uh, one of those green, big road signs uh, to the right of our vehicle, and I look up, and it says Mosul. And even like right now, it's almost like I can feel shivers, but um, Mosul today is like the region of Nineveh past. And if you've been you know, uh, paying any attention at all to world history in the last five or ten years, you know that Mosul was a place that was taken by ISIS. And... Um, as I'm in Iraq, I, I read a book called Fleeing ISIS, Finding Jesus. And you hear some of the personal stories of people that lived in Mosul and the region around it. Let me just read you a couple of excerpts. This is from Diana, who was a nun who lived in that region. She said this, We never thought that ISIS would do 
do what they did to us. Our Muslim neighbors in Mosul and in the towns across the Nineveh Plains always said that they would protect us, that there was no need for us to fear. But when they started spray-painting the Arabic letter N for Nazarene on Christian houses, we knew they were for real. They were telling everyone that the property belonged to ISIS now, and it reminded me of what happened in Germany before World War II. The book also describes the situation of a man named Johanna. He lives south of Mosul in a city called Karakesh, which also fell. And the book describes his real-life experience on the night that he fled his city. There was no time to pause or look back or even think to grab his wedding ring, wallet, notebooks, or even his life savings, which totaled thousands of dollars. Johanna left them all. Johanna's car, 1990 Opal Sedan, was just outside. They drove a couple of blocks until four men ran into the road ahead of them and held up their hands. Johanna didn't recognize them at first, but as he looked, he saw that one of them was a neighbor. They jumped in the car immediately and carried on driving. Three more guys flagged them down further down the road, and they climbed in too. It was tight in the car, barely enough room to breathe. At the edge of the town, Johanna slowed. Ahead was a man holding his child, walking along with his wife and two daughters. Johanna drove on. The car was full and there was no space to put anyone else. Then he stopped and he turned to the others. Hey guys, can you get in the trunk? They didn't hesitate for a second. Johanna put the car in reverse. When he pulled away again, the car was carrying 14 people. Three in the trunk, the family plus the old man in the back, two next to Johanna up front, and two more on the hood. He had a space only about as big as a magazine to see through, and the car groaned and strained like an aging plow that had long since been covered over with rust. But slowly, mile by mile, they made it to the checkpoint. Inside the car, the family was crying. Johanna looked in the rearview mirror and saw tears cascading down the father's face. Terror took a bite out of Johanna's heart, they drove in silence, just the sound of tears from the back. Johanna slowed as they approached the first checkpoint out of the town. It had been there for years, and Johanna had never known it to be unguarded. But then, on that night that Karakash fell, the barrier was up, and the place was deserted. To understand the backstory of Jonah and what he would have been thinking in relation to the Ninevites, it's like a Christian of Mosul or Karakesh thinking about the people of ISIS who have and will brutalize family and their cities. So it is for Jonah to think of the Assyrians in their capital city of Ninevite. What is God doing? What is going on? Does God not see the brutality and the wickedness of these people? Well, we look in Scripture and we see in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to the city of Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. We've heard the words in chapter 3 where Jonah pronounces judgment on Nineveh. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. God has indeed seen what has been going on. And as we come to the story in this point that we're entering into in Jonah chapter 4, there's a couple of bullet points that we're already aware of. First of all, we're aware of that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and we've seen that. He's sovereign over the Mediterranean Sea. He's caused a storm to happen. 
so that Jonah would, would, would have to be thrown overboard. And, and when that happens, the sea goes instantly calm. This is the work. This is the doing of God. We see that God is sovereign over the, create, the creatures of the sea. Jonah is swallowed up by a great fish at God's command. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. And we've seen here as we've read these verses that God is also just. He does see, he does hear the wickedness that is going on on the earth. He's not oblivious to it. But there's something else that we now enter into as we enter into chapter 4. And it comes from the mouth of Jonah as he's just, as he's watching, as he's waiting, if God will carry out the word of judgment that he has prophesied. And it does not happen. Jonah verse 2 of chapter 4, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is, it not, is this not this why I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew not only bullet point God is sovereign, bullet point God is just, bullet point God is gracious and merciful. Where did he get that from? Well, as a Jew, as an Israelite, he would have known the words given to Moses. And we, we look back into Moses' chapter, his words in chapter 34 of Exodus, Exodus. When Moses wanted to see God's glory and he wanted a more and deeper relationship with God, God says, I'm going to show you my goodness. You're not going to be able to see it all. I'll show you the back of myself. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. And this is what God says to him in that time. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Does that sound familiar? And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. Yes, God is just. Yes, God is sovereign. But Jonah also knows that God is gracious and that God is merciful. This is an Old Testament passage. And some of us, you know, we sit so far from that in this side of, of in the New Testament world after Jesus has come and what he's done. And we understand through what God did through Jesus that he is merciful, that he is gracious. But you need to know this morning, God's character and his nature, his person has always been that way. Always. In the second century, there was a man named Marcion who, who really struggled with what he saw about the God in the New Testament and the God in the Old Testament. And, and he started to teach that they are not the same. And the early church battled against his false teaching. And we have, we have many quotes. One is from Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers. He said again, speaking of Marcion and those who followed him, in order that they might take away from the Father the power of reproving and of judging thinking that it is unworthy of God and believing that they have found a, good who is, a God who is good and free from anger, they asserted that one God judges, the God of the Old Testament, and the other saves, the God of the New Testament. So wherever Marcion in the New Testament found that the God of the Old Testament was, was equated with the Father God in the New Testament, he was just like, those scriptures don't count. 
The early church rejected his teaching, and rightfully so. And we can see even in this little short book of Jonah, it flies in the face of what he taught. As Jonah proclaims, God is gracious and merciful. He's always been that way and always will be. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jonah has proclaimed that in what he says. So there's a a very well-known saying by A.W. Tozer who is widely read. He was a Canadian pastor and author. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. See, the way that I see God largely influences how I see myself. And the way I see God and the way I see myself hugely drives the activity, the actions, the way that I live. How I see God, how I see myself drives how I live. And these things then sort of intermingle with one another as we live. But, but our thinking about God and ourselves is hugely foundational. And so as we look at the story of Jonah, we're learning about the person of God. What is he like? What is personality? And that's going to shape how we see ourselves, and it should shape how we live. Bullet point one, God is sovereign. So how do I see myself? I see myself as a person that can't control my circumstances. That there are places where I cannot, you know, work everything so it works out exactly the way that I want it to. Only God can do that. That puts me in a place of vulnerability, but a place where I have the opportunity to trust the one who is sovereign. The one who can control all things. And the story of Jonah asks the question of me, will I trust God when when times are difficult, when it's foggy, when I'm uncertain about what God is doing, when I can't make sense of what God is doing, or if God has asked me to do something difficult, in those moments will I trust him? It gets really practical sometimes. So so when I'm in, in this sort of perplexing situation, Will I cast aside worry and anxiety and will I just choose to say, God, I'm going to trust you because God is sovereign. That's how I see myself. It affects the way that I live. Bullet point number two, we said God is just. So how do I see myself? I see myself as one who yearns for that. I yearn for the justice of God. I yearn for things to be made right. I, I hate it when I see people take advantage of one another and there's, there's no uh, repercussions. There's no accountability for them. And so I, I love the fact that there's accountability in this life, that my life has purpose, purpose, that God will bring everything I do into accountability. There's a reason for my life and, and activities. They have value. But at the same time, I'm struck with the fact that as I think about myself and I ask the question, am I just enough? Like before God, am, am I good enough? That question lingers, and we'll address that a little bit later in our talk this morning. But as I think about the justness of God and his holiness, and I begin to think about myself, there's a lingering question. Am I good enough? And now as we enter into chapter 4 with those two bullet points, we see the, the third one we're talking about, God is gracious. And in particular, what Jonah is emphasizing, mercy See, grace is getting something you don't deserve. So you get a gift that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something you deserve. 
Nineveh deserves judgment. Their wickedness, God uses the, the sort of a phrase of it's reached me. I've, I hear it. I see it. Its wickedness has come up to me. It's deserving of God's judgment. And he gives the word to Jonah. In 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. That's the judgment. But there's something beyond that. There's mercy and grace that God wants to give. And Jonah is going to learn that now, not just as a bullet point form, but in experience. See, as we've gone through the story already, we've seen the sailors need mercy. Jonah's re- Jonah needs mercy. He's already got it. The city of Nineveh needs mercy. mercy. And as you enter into it, you begin to realize, maybe I too need mercy. Everybody in the story is in process. Just like every one of us is in process. None of us have reached that place of perfectness, perfectness, rightness before God. Just ask your neighbor. Ask your family. We're all in process and we all need the mercy of God. And Jonah needs to understand this to a greater degree. Verse 5 of chapter 4, Jonah goes out, outside of the city and sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now remember, he's a prophet. Prophets get the word of the Lord. They speak that word and because God is sovereign, he brings it to pass. It comes to pass. If you prophesy something and it doesn't happen, especially in the Old Testament, guess what? Nobody respects you. You're over. You're finished. Jonah sits outside of the city and he watches. Nothing's happened yet. He's displeased because he suspects he knows what's going on. God is going to be gracious and merciful. And it displeases him very, very much. Last summer when I was in Iraq, uh, we had our uh, conference in one hotel, but we all stayed in a different hotel. And so we had a walk of about 300 meters to get from one air-conditioned building to the other air-conditioned building. And it's amazing in that 300-meter walk. You know, you've had a shower, you get up in the morning, you go, and by the time you get to the other building, you need a shower again. Uh, It's hot, it's sweaty, I can just imagine Jonah, he's there outside of the city in the desert and he's looking out and it's in that 40-some degree temperature and he builds this little shade um, or this little booth for himself to try and get some uh, similarity of shade and comfort in that open air heat. And God is gracious to him. God is very gracious. It says in verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Do you see what God's done? God's given him a portable air conditioning unit. Isn't that amazing? And it says that Jonah is really pleased about that because of the plant. He's exceedingly glad. So here's where we are at the story so far. A whole city has turned from their wickedness and turned to God. We know in the New Testament, Jesus teaches us that when one person turns from their sin, from their wickedness, and turns to God, it says the angels in heaven rejoice. Here we have a whole city that has turned to God. Jonah's angry. 
exceedingly displeased. And he gets this little itty bitty plant that grows, gives him some shade, and it says he's really, really happy. Jonah's more happy about his comfort than about the people. God stays with him, which to me is so uh, incredibly encouraging. That when we don't get it, God doesn't just abandon us. Okay, I tried to teach you a lesson, you didn't get it. He stays with them. He's going to teach them an object lesson. It says in verse 7, But when a dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Remember, he's sovereign. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. How melodramatic, huh? I want to die. Nothing's working out for him. But God said to Jonah, do you well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well. I want to just die. But verse 10, God wants to teach something to Jonah. He wants to teach something to us about what kind of person that God is. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. It was a gift of grace. Jonah feels entitled. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. That word pity there... In the original language, it it comes from a root meaning, which means to begrudge the eye. In other words, it's referring to tears. You're tearful about a plant. God says, I'm tearful. I'm emotional. I'm compassionate about people. Yes, even the wicked people of Nineveh. So we see in the story an amazing, full-bodied picture of God who is sovereign, who is just. But we get a full-bodied picture that he is a God who is incredibly gracious, incredibly merciful, incredibly compassionate. That it's God in this story who makes the first move to bring Nineveh in a right relationship with God. You see, God has no interest in bringing judgment to people. He, ha- he, he takes no pleasure in the judgment of wickedness. God just wants to get people back to a right place with him. And so God makes the first move through Jonah, the preaching of the word, that if they don't turn, it's going to be bad. But the people respond, and you need, we need to see in his sovereignty, God responds to the actions of the people, and he is gracious. He is merciful. They do not get what they deserve. So we move now into our time and our day in the New Testament. And we see that when God sent his son Jesus, as we're going to celebrate in this Christmas season, that God in the flesh and in the person of Jesus Christ took on human flesh and walked in our world and then went to the cross. And there he died and there he rose again. That it's in that moment, it's in that place on the cross where the justice of God meets the mercy of God. And we are told in the book of Romans that Jesus became a propitiation. He became a satisfaction for justice 
so that those who believe in God can be declared just, can be, can be declared right. Remember I said we have this lingering question, can we be good enough, can we be right enough with God? At the cross, that question is answered, but it won't be answered by you doing good. It'll only be answered by you putting your faith and your trust completely in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, as mercy triumphs over judgment, you now are, are given this, this relationship with God where you're free from your past and from all the horrific things you might have done. There's nothing you have done that is so bad that can keep you from the mercy and grace of God so that now we live, having been recipients of such great mercy, such great grace, now we live in reflection of that, empowered by God's Holy Spirit whom he poured out after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father as we live looking forward to that day when Jesus Christ comes again, when he returns. Oh, what mercy. Oh, what grace we have received. As I've reflected on this story in my own life and I see that in God and I see myself a recipient of mercy, a recipient of grace, I want to extend that to other people. I would hope that as we, as this picture of who God is, as it, as it just goes deeper in us and, and we understand how much mercy, how much grace as followers of Jesus Christ that, that we have received that, that there's no one that, that, that we can look down upon because everything we, we've got is because of God, because of what he's done. So there's no people group that we think ourselves better than. And I don't know in your own life who, you know, who is your ISIS? Who is that person that's hurt you? There's nobody, there's no group we cannot forgive. Because as God has been merciful to me, as greatly as others need his mercy, so do I. So Jonah finishes. Jonah doesn't finish with telling us to something to do. It finishes with a question. What I think the writer is doing, he's saying, now that you see what God is like, and maybe through Jonah we get a glimpse into ourselves. How will we then think? And how will we then live? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the many ways in which you have loved us. I thank you how you've loved us supremely in Jesus Christ. I thank you how you've loved us in giving us your word. I thank you for the mercy and grace that overflows to us so that we can walk in right relationship with you. I pray today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take this story, the things that we've heard, the things that have been spoken this morning, the things that have been sung, and Lord, would it, would it reach the crevices of our heart? Lord, would it drive from us any sense of prejudice or self-righteousness, Lord? And may it instead affirm that we are recipients of your mercy and grace. And Lord, you have made us something that we were not. You've made us right in your sight, right in relationship with you. We thank you so much, Lord, that your love has extended to us in this way. And so, Lord, may our lives going forward simply be lives of worship. May what we speak, what we say, what we think, Lord, reflect 
what we have in our relationship with you, almighty God. In Jesus' name, amen.